Let us pray. God, our Father, we know that you have spoken to us in your word. We ask that you would now speak again to us through it. And by your Holy Spirit, that you would open our ears to hear and our hearts to respond. Ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. June 11th, 1983, was just a normal Saturday. At least it was normal for most families. For Nicholas and Claire Walterstorff, it was anything but. For that was the day that their 25-year-old son, Eric, was climbing a mountain in Austria and slipped and fell to his death. Nicholas later described the experience of when he received the news. The call, he says, came at 3.30 on that Sunday afternoon. A bright, sunny day. Mr. Walterstorff? Yes? Is this Eric's father? Yes. Mr. Walterstorff, I must give you some bad news. Eric has been climbing in the mountains and has had an accident. Mr. Walterstorff, I must tell you, Eric is dead. Over the next several years, Nicholas, who was a prominent Christian philosopher, chronicled the process of his grief in a series of written reflections that he would later publish as a book called Lament for a Son. As you might imagine, it is a book filled not only with grief, but with pain, with anger, and with brutal honesty as he struggled to reconcile his faith with the tragic death of his son. Listen, for instance, to what he says in this passage. I have no explanation. I can do nothing else than endure in the face of this deepest and most painful of mysteries. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and resurrector of Jesus Christ. I also believe that my son's life was cut off in its prime I cannot fit these pieces together. I am at a loss. My wound is an unanswered question. I don't know whether you've experienced the death of a child, but I do know that some of you, maybe many of you, have suffered through profound pain and sorrow. Some of you are living with such pain right now. And perhaps, like Nicholas Wolterstorff, perhaps that pain remains for you an unanswered question, something that you simply cannot fit together with the faith you confess, something that leaves you at a loss. And if that's you, I wish, I wish that I could give you a clear and easy answer to the questions that trouble you. I wish I could tell you something that would make it all okay. But the truth is the Bible doesn't answer many of our questions. It leaves many mysteries unsolved. Nicholas was a Christian scholar, a lifelong student of the Bible. 
But when he turned to it in his grief, he found no clear or easy answers. What he did find, however, was a companion, a man who, like him, knew the depths of despair, and yet who, like him, refused to renounce the reality of God. Again and again in his memoir, Nicholas mentions this man, this biblical character whose story echoes his own story and whose testimony enabled him to remain defiantly hopeful even in his darkest moments. And the name of that man is Job. And Job has an entire book of the Bible dedicated to him. But ironically, we don't actually know very much about him. Most of what we do know, we're told in the first several verses of the book. And we learn three things. First, Job was a man from the land of Uz, which means about as much to me as it does to you. I don't know. But interestingly, it does mean that he wasn't an Israelite. The second thing is, Job was wealthy, very, very wealthy. So wealthy, in fact, that he is described as the greatest man of all the people of the East. And the third thing is that Job was righteous. Upright and blameless is how he's described. He feared the Lord, we're told, and he turned away from evil. He offered sacrifices on behalf of his children, just in case, just in case, mind you, they had sinned in their heart. And later on in chapter 29, we learn that in his life, he acted as eyes for the blind, feet for the lame, and a father for those in need. That's all we really know about Job. And that's okay, because what's significant about him is not where he was from, what town he grew up in, who his parents were, what kind of personality he had. What's significant about Job is what he suffered. I'm sure you know the story. One day, Satan asks God for permission to harass Job, to prove the point that all of Job's piety and righteous behavior is really nothing more than a shallow response to the blessings he enjoys. Of course, Job fears you, says Satan. Look how much you've given him. Look how you've blessed him. Take it away. Then you'll see what kind of man he really is. And so God allows Satan to do just that, to take away the peace of Job's life and give him pain instead. And not just a little pain, a lot. First, it's the loss of his wealth. There's this series of messengers, three of them, one right after the other. The first one shows up and tells him that some marauders have stolen his donkeys and murdered his servants. And then before that one can even finish talking, another one shows up and says that a natural disaster has destroyed all of his flocks of sheep. And then immediately a third messenger arrives to relay the news that a band of Chaldeans has taken all of his camels and killed the rest of his servants. But then it gets really bad. Because then a fourth messenger shows up. He's sweaty. He's out of breath. Job, he says, I have some bad news. There was an accident. Your, your children, they were all together in a home. 
and a, a storm struck out of nowhere and it collapsed. I'm sorry, Job. Your children are dead. When Nicholas Woltersdorf received that call, he said that for three seconds, for three seconds, he experienced a kind of peaceful resignation. And then, then he says, came the pain, cold, burning pain. Job probably felt that cold, burning pain But despite Satan's arrogant predictions, he refused to curse his God. No, what did he say in response? You remember? Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Even after Satan comes back and robs him of what little he has left, his own health, and leaves him covered in painful open wounds, even when Job's own wife mocks him for his faith, still he remains steadfast and he refuses to curse his maker. You know, it's easy to read these early reactions of Job and think that here you've got this man who suddenly, somehow, just seems to accept whatever life throws his way. And he just doesn't get too down about it. He just remains unaffected somehow. The ancient Stoic philosophers, they used to say that the key to happiness in life is to realize that whatever hardship you may face, whatever trial or whatever sorrow, whatever disappointment, just you have to realize that this is just how life is and you can't really control it anyway. So you'd be much better off just learning how to accept it. It's just the way things are. Better to just resign yourself to it and get on with life. That's a pretty tragic outlook in many ways, but it's actually very attractive to many people. Interestingly, I came across recently a couple articles and they were talking about uh, this revival of interest in ancient Stoicism. It's going on right now in Hollywood and Silicon Valley, which surprised me. Not not because I think celebrities don't read. That would be very uncharitable. No, it's just that when you think of Hollywood and Silicon Valley, you think of things that are new and trendy and innovative, not long dead Roman philosophers like Marcus Aurelius and Seneca. But evidently Seneca's trending because as bleak as his outlook on life may be, it at least, for many people, it at least seems honest. And that honesty is very appealing It's like what Wesley says in The Princess Bride. Life is pain, Highness. Anyone who says differently is selling something. And the sooner you learn to accept that, the better off you'll be. At least that's what the Stoics thought. And you might think, when you read Job, you might think that's also Job's state of mind. Because look how casually he responds. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Sounds like the words of a man who just resigns himself to the fact that sometimes life is just terrible. There's nothing you can do about it. You just gotta get on with things. But that's a serious misinterpretation of Job's attitude. He doesn't refuse to curse God because he's just learned to accept that life is hard and he doesn't get worked up about it. No, make no mistake. Job is in pain. He is bewildered. 
He's hurting and he's angry because he knows that this is not the way things are supposed to be. After his friends come and visit with him and they sit down with him in silence for a week, grieving, then Job opens his mouth and he tells us exactly how he feels. He curses the day he was born. He wishes he had never been born. Let the day perish on which I was born and the night that said a man is conceived. Why did I not die at birth, come out from the womb and expire? Those are not the words of a man who just resigns himself to accept whatever suffering comes his way and not get worked up about it. Those are the words of a man who is hurting and angry and refuses to be at peace with the death of his children. Job does not calmly accept his suffering, nor nor does he attempt to come up with reasons to justify it or explain it away. Unlike his three friends, who try to do just that. And you know, you got to feel bad for these three friends. They don't come off very well in the book, but, but they mean well, and they intend well, bless their hearts. They really do. You know, they come, and the first thing they do, they come and they sit with him and they grieve for an entire week in silence. When is the last time or any time that you and I have shown that kind of kindness and compassion to a friend? It's remarkable. But then, then they make that fatal mistake. They start to talk. It's always what gets us in trouble, isn't it? The book of Proverbs says that even a fool is considered wise when he remains silent. And that those who restrain their words have wisdom. And it's a shame that Job's friends didn't heed that advice. Again, they mean well. They, they, they want to help Job. They want to help him understand why it is that God has allowed this suffering to come into his life. And they think that somehow if they can just say the right thing, well, then Job will be able to just accept it and and learn from it and move on. But despite all their good intentions, they end up just saying a bunch of things that aren't true. Like when Eliphaz tells Job that it's, obvious that Job doesn't really fear God or have faith because if he did, he wouldn't be so upset about things. Or when Bildad suggests that all of this misery in Job's life is clearly some kind of punishment for some sin he's committed. And if he just repent, then God would relent and he would bless him. Or when Zophar, bless his heart, implies that Job must be very wicked indeed. And in fact, he probably deserves even worse than he got. And he better shut up and stop complaining or God's gonna strike him even worse. And the funny thing is that, the funny thing is that for as well-intended as they are, these friends, they just end up reproducing the same kind of theology that we hear coming from the mouth of Satan in chapter one. Good people prosper because they're good. And You know, the reason people are good is because they want to prosper. And if something bad happens, then you obviously did something wrong. Satan insinuates that that's really what Job believes, which is a lie. It's obvious that's not how Job thinks, but it is how his friends think. And in all their attempts to comfort him, they really just end up spouting off a bunch of nonsense. 
not that you and I are always better, bless our hearts. We do have good intentions. We want to help. We want to comfort our friends. And so we, we try to say things that'll make it better. We try to, 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 to help them understand why, to give them an explanation why it is that God allowed that cancer to spread or that drunk driver to be on the road that night or that beloved mother to suffer from dementia. Because we think if only we could understand the pain, if only we could answer the question why, then somehow things will be all better. Then our wounds will no longer be unanswered questions. Honestly though, we would all probably be better off if we, if we just sat in silence and didn't say anything at all. Now, in the end, you know, in the end, Job never does receive an answer to the question why. He's never given an explanation. His friends give him a lot of answers and they're all wrong. They're all false. And despite Job's protests, God himself remains silent. He never, never does give Job an explanation. In fact, all the evidence seems to suggest that God himself has turned on Job. It's what his wife thinks. It's what his friends think. And, and many times it seems that Job himself is convinced that God has become his enemy. In chapter 10, he speaks to God and he says, tell me, why do you contend against me? Does it seem good to you to oppress to despise the work of your hands? Your hands fashioned and made me, and now you have destroyed me altogether. And then later in chapter 16, he says, surely now God has worn me out. He has made desolate all my company, and he has shriveled me up. You know, one of the things I find most compelling about Job's faith and who he is as a person, one of the things I find most compelling is his utter lack of sentimentality. Job is not a sentimental man. He does not put on a cheerful face and a smile and say that things aren't really that bad. He doesn't give you some pithy line like, well, every cloud has a silver lining or it's all okay because everything happens for a reason. No, Job is brutally honest. He protests what has happened to him and he doesn't understand it. And he can't stand the fact that God won't answer his questions and tell him why. And yet, despite it all, despite the pain and the anger, despite the falsehood of his friends, despite the silence of God, Job refuses to give up his faith. He remains defiant. And even in the darkness, he remains hopeful. And there's perhaps no greater expression of his defiant hope than this passage that we read this morning from Job chapter 19. Again, in this passage, he's speaking to his friends. Again, he's rejecting all of their accusations and their simplistic answers. But this time, this time, he doesn't want only his friends to hear his words. This time he wants history to record them and remember them forever. Oh, that my words were written. 
Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead, they were engraved in the rock forever. Job, at this point, has said a great deal about his changed circumstances. But now, now he utters a changeless and unalterable truth. Whatever may come his way, of one thing he is certain, I know, I know that my Redeemer lives and at the last he will stand upon the earth. Who is this Redeemer? Who does Job think is coming to save him? Well, the next two verses make it clear. At the last, there is one and only one that he knows he will see. After my skin has thus been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another. That, friends, that is the Bible's answer to pain and suffering. It's how it teaches us to hope, even in the midst of our darkness. Fortunes may change. Friends and family may fail us. Those that we love may be taken from us with no explanation. Even our own bodies may betray us. And most of the time, most of the time, we will not know why. Sometimes we may rage and protest and demand like Job that God give us an answer, but that doesn't mean he will grant our request. Sometimes it may even feel that God himself has turned against us. But in the end, we'll know that's not true. Because our Redeemer lives, and at the last, when we have passed through this veil of tears, then with our own eyes we shall behold him. I do wonder whether when Job spoke these words, I wonder if he realized how prophetic he was being. Did he know that one day there would be another righteous man in Jerusalem who would suffer just as he did? Did he know that this man would bear the weight not only of his own sorrow, but of the sorrows of us all? Did he know that this man's friends would turn against him, that his body would be beaten and bloodied, that he would be mocked and laughed at and spat upon? Did he know that just like him, this man would bear and suffer the silence of God and cry out those heartbreaking words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I doubt it. How could Job have known? But I imagine, I imagine that he would take great comfort in knowing that he wasn't alone, that there was another who knew the depth of his pain, even more, though, I think Job would have been comforted. Let me change that. I think Job will be comforted, and he will be astonished to find that at the last, when he looks upon the face of his Redeemer, that the eyes looking back at him are the eyes of the man who suffered with him and for him, who felt his sorrow and endured his pain. I wonder how Job will feel when on that day in his resurrected flesh, he sees God 
And he realizes that his redeemer not only lives for him, but died for him. How will he fear? How will he feel when he discovers that even in those times of silence, when he realizes that he was never really alone, that God was never far from him, but always with him in his grief. I don't know how Job will feel. I could pose the same questions to us. No matter what pain or sorrow confronts you, no matter what grief you feel, no matter how many questions you have that remain unanswered, of one thing you can be sure, our Redeemer lives. And one day, at the last, one day we shall see him and all shall be made well. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.